Can we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 1? Can you stand in honor of God's word this morning? Joshua, chapter 1. I know that this is the middle of a summer series, but I really believe that this is a word from the Lord, that uh, there are... um, Every message I'm, I'm praying to the Lord about, and I believe that, that God gives, but today I believe that this is a now word. Um, I believe it's not only a word for our church, but I believe it's a word for the church at large. And um, I'm praying that you receive it with an open heart this morning. Joshua 1.1, it says, After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land that I'm giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you'll be on land that I've given you, from the Negev wilderness in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I'll be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous, for you're the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors that I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you'll be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually, Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Father, I believe that you're speaking this word to us today. We know that it was written to Joshua But God, because your word is living and it's active, it's a word for us today. God, I pray that it would hit us with the same force that it did young Joshua as he was about to embrace this seemingly insurmountable task of leading three million people into the promised land. God, I ask that our tasks would not seem so insurmountable because of the word of the Lord this morning. You promise that every time your word goes forth, every time that it goes out, it accomplishes the very purpose for which you've sent it. Accomplish the purpose of your word in each and every heart today, I ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. You can be seated. Why did God have to state the obvious with, with Joshua? Why did God have to tell Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead? Can't you picture Joshua? Okay, um, I know that he's dead. Why, why did God have to tell Joshua something so obvious? I believe there's a truth for us here. Before we look into that, Let's go to Deuteronomy 34, so just a page in front of where you are, Deuteronomy 34, and let's let's look at 
verses 10, 11, and 12, the last three verses of the book of Deuteronomy. It says, There has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord sent him to perform all the miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. How would you like to follow in those footsteps? If you were Joshua, how would you like to walk in those footsteps? Look at what it says. It says that there has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. Wow. And Joshua is supposed to succeed that. Joshua is supposed to be able to do what Moses couldn't do, and he's supposed to be able to get the children of Israel into the promised land. Why does God state the obvious at times, like he did with Joshua? Moses, my servant, is dead. These things are going to form the bulk of our study on Moses and Joshua today. We have all suffered loss in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the loss of a loved one, um, the, 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 we, you could even say divorce is a, is a type of loss, the loss of a, of a marriage, and loss in whatever form it comes is a very powerful force on, on us. It's a very powerful force on a life. And I'm going to say this, and I believe you're going to agree with me that just because it's a physical reality does not mean that we've embraced it fully. Let me just say this. Loss can cause us to wrestle with aspects of abandonment that we didn't even know. Remember years ago I was on a retreat, and it was a men's retreat, maybe one of the finer men's retreats that I know of even to this day. It's called The Quest. There's a woman's quest, there's a men's quest, and and they do a, a remarkable job at stripping away all of the distractions and focusing on your heart with God, your heart before God. And it's an amazing week. The, they have them all over the United States. They have them in Michigan and North Carolina and Texas. I was in Texas, southern Texas. I'm, a, I'm far away from, from anyone um, that I know, my family. You can't communicate with family. You're just all alone with God on this retreat. And at the beginning of this retreat, you know, we're kind of giving our testimonies and then they just kind of pray for you. And one of the counselors, spiritual counselors there, when I shared about how I, I found my mother dead at 18 years old and performed CPR on her, one of the counselors said, John, I'm so sorry that your mom abandoned you. And I thought, my mom didn't abandon me. She, she, she passed away. And a lot of times we fail to embrace the fact that we feel abandoned through loss. We feel abandoned through loss. Could I say this? That I would even be so bold as saying that when my dad's alcoholism escalated, I felt abandoned as he gave himself to his addiction. Felt like he abandoned me. When I needed him to be there for me, I'm 18 and I was an immature hard partying 18-year-old, 
my mom's dead and, and dad chooses to, to self-medicate, I felt abandoned. Many look back with fondness and others miss so much that they want that time back and they long for it. Did you know that that word lust means longing for that which is forbidden? You cannot bring people back because you miss them so much. And I don't believe it's healthy to want them back again. You, you can't long for something that's not possible. And when we're constantly looking back, we cannot possibly move forward. It's kind of like half of us is back there and and the other half is trying to exist in the here and now. Well, pastor, when my loved one died, a part of me died too. I don't believe that. And I struggle with that saying. What are you telling then? You telling all your loved ones that they only get half your heart from here on out? Because a part of you died, a part of you did not die. That's why we have our memories, so that we can remember all those amazing moments. And through Joshua and Moses, I want to show you that a part of you does not have to die. That you, that you can be stronger and you can be wiser and you can be of greater use after great loss than you ever thought that you could be before. With Joshua as our example, he was never going to be able to lead all of those people if he was constantly looking back and wishing that Moses was still here. Oh my gosh, where's Moses? What would he do right now? If, I, if only Moses were here, surely he'd know what to do. No wonder why people are pursuing psychics and no wonder because they are trying to connect with the past and they're longing for the past. The difference between the Holy Spirit and psychics that are manipulated by demons or that God wants to speak into our future and the psychics are trying to clarify your past. And do you honestly think that your loved ones that knew Jesus being where they are right now, would come back if they could? I don't think so. Let me answer that for you. No way as much as they love you. Pastor John, how could you say that? Based on everything that we know from Scripture, they are now where they were created to be. The, the God that knew them before they were formed in their mother's womb, they're now reunited and they're seeing him face to face. No more tears, no more pain. And yet we would want them to come back and experience all the pain that they'd known in their flesh. Come back and suffer with us. Don't live for eternity around the throne. Something's wrong when we are looking back with such fondness on the past that, oh, I wish I could. You're like Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite if I could just go back in time. Joshua was never going to be able to lead all of those people if he was constantly comparing himself to Moses, who was no longer there. And in order to lead the people in what they've never known, Joshua had to be the leader that they've never known. I don't, I don't believe God wants you filling somebody's shoes. As long as we're kicking over sacred cows this morning, let me just keep going. You know, I could never walk in their shoes. I don't think God's asking you to. I don't think God's asking you to fill anybody's shoes, to walk in anybody's shoes. I think God's asking you to leave off from their shoulders, not to retrace their steps. I don't think God's trying to get us to maintain somebody else's existence. 
I don't think God's trying to, to get us to, man, I just hope that I can one day be like my father or like my mother or like my sister or like my brother. God needs you to be who he's created you to be. He needs you to lead like he's created you to lead. And he's not trying to get you to be like somebody else who's not even among us anymore. And I don't believe they're looking down upon us and watching out for us. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I don't believe there are holes in, in heaven's floor and they're looking down or however the song goes. I forget how it goes. I, I don't believe that. I, I know it might seem good to sing about that stuff and to think about that. I just know that they're watching over me right now. Are you kidding? They're worshiping around the throne with thousands upon thousands of angels experiencing God in his fullness like they've never known. Here is the taste and there is eternity. And we get moments of eternity, Pastor Dan will say it all the time, in this thin place where heaven seems to meet earth. But come on, think with me. Think with me. We have to be able to move on. You're not disrespecting your loved ones. They would be proud of you. Be grateful for all the wonderful memories that you have. Let them empower you to be who God's called you to be. Do you honestly think that your loved ones on their deathbeds, if you had the opportunity to talk to them, that they would tell you, do your best to be like me. Be the best example of me that you could possibly be. No, they'd say, you run with gusto, hard after God, and you be everything that he's called you to be. You fulfill his calling and his purposes on your life. With great guns, go after God. For all his giftedness, Moses could not get the people into the promised land. Joshua had something as a leader that Moses did not have. Why did God tell Joshua three times in Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, to be strong and very courageous? Three times he told him that. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. What did Joshua have that Moses lacked and therefore enabled him to lead the people into the promised land? What did he have that Moses lacked? Well, in order for us to grasp this, we're going to have to go back to the book of Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4. I think notes say Exodus 5. I was wrong. It's 4. I get excited when I'm writing my sermons too, so go easy on me. Exodus 4, let's pick up the story in Exodus 4, 18. This is after the burning bush experience. God's told Moses, after much dialogue, I want you to go back. I've heard the cry of my people. Go back to Egypt. Verse 18, so Moses went back home to Jethro, his father-in-law. Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt, Moses said. I don't even know if they're still alive. Okay, Stop for a moment. What respect he had for his father-in-law, Jethro, to ask his permission. The Lord spoke to him. I see so many people that are just going kind of just great guns, and they don't need anybody's permission because the Lord spoke. God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush, and he asked his unsaved father-in-law if he could return back to Egypt. Incredible respect, incredible submission to authority. There's a message in here that for another day and another time. Go in peace, Jethro replied. Before Moses left Midian, the Lord said to him, return to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you have died. 
So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, headed back to the land of Egypt. In his hand he carried the staff of God. And the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I've empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you let my son go so he can worship me, but since you've refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. On the way to Egypt, check this out, don't know if you've ever seen this, at the place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. Hold on a minute. God tells him to go back to Egypt. He grabs his wife, sons, they're heading back to Egypt, and as they're heading back to Egypt, God confronts them and is about to kill him. Doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? Keep reading with me. But Moses' wife Zipporah took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with a foreskin and said, now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. When she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. After that, the Lord left him alone. Wow. Crazy scene, God wants to kill Moses after asking him to return to Egypt because he hadn't circumcised his son. Note that it was not Moses that circumcised his son, it was his wife Zipporah that did that. Now go to Joshua chapter five with me and we'll begin to tie why this story makes any sense with where we're headed this morning. Joshua five, look at verse two. Yeah, 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 verse 2, Joshua 5, 2. Are you there with me? You getting there? It says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the second generation of Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel at Gibeath, Haraloth. Joshua had to circumcise them because all the men who were old enough to fight in battle when they left Egypt had died in the wilderness. Those who, were le- who had left Egypt had all been circumcised, but none of those born after the Exodus during the years in the wilderness had been circumcised. The Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were old enough to fight in battle when they had left Egypt had died. For they had disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord vowed that he would not let them enter the land he sworn to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Joshua circumcised their sons, those who had grown up to take their father's places, for they had not been circumcised on the way to the promised land. After all the males had been circumcised, they rested in the camp until they were healed. The Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal to this day. The Septuagint says that, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the New Testament's written in Greek, Old Testament in Hebrew. And in New Testament times, they wanted a Greek version to complement the New Testament. They wanted the Greek version of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, at the end of the book of Joshua, it says that they buried Joshua with the flint knives that he circumcised the entire male population of Israel. They buried him with the flint knives that he made to circumcise all of the men. What an unusual thing to bury Joshua with. Why didn't they bury Joshua with one of the stones um, from the Jordan River where they walked across on dry ground? Why didn't they bury Joshua with one of the bricks or blocks from the wall of Jericho that came tumbling down? Why would they bury him with the flint knives that he used to circumcise all of the men? 
What an unusual thing. Because that act of circumcision was so much bigger and so much more critical to the future of Israel than you could possibly imagine. No one goes into battle without being circumcised. No one can handle warfare without being circumcised. Dear Lord, help people get this this morning. I'd say what was said of Moses at the end of his life in Deuteronomy 34 was much more impressive than than Joshua. I mean, what a resume. God knew him face to face, did many miracles and, and, and terrifying acts is what the New Living says. Much more impressive than Joshua. So what was it that Joshua had that Moses didn't have? What was it that enabled Joshua to lead some three million people into the promised land where Moses couldn't? We're talking about Moses, part of the Red Sea. We're talking about Moses who was used by God to usher in 10 plagues. What did Joshua have that Moses didn't? Joshua had a knife. That's what he had. And how in the world could Moses ever lead the children of Israel into the promised land when he couldn't circumcise his own sons? Joshua had a knife. And not only was he capable of circumcising his own sons, but he was capable of circumcising an entire male population so that they could go to war with a right heart so that they could go to war in proper relationship with God. And back then, the symbol of that covenant was circumcision. Let me tell you something that I, I believe. I believe that Moses may have been circumcised, but he couldn't lead people into circumcision. And I believe many leaders never grow beyond their own circumcision. Many leaders never grow beyond their own circumcision. Many leaders never grow beyond their own personal relationship with God so that God can use them to, to reach others, so that God can use them to affect other people's hearts. Their hearts have been affected. Their hearts have been affected. And so they're able to get out of something, but they're never able to lead anyone anywhere because they never have grown beyond their own personal spirituality. They've never grown beyond their own spiritual circumcision. God, I admit that you've cut things away from my heart and my life, but I don't know if you'll be able to use me to benefit anybody else's heart and anybody else's life. Joshua could stare down 10 other spies and say, we can take the land. They're our food. While all Israel is listening to the other 10. Joshua could stand up at the end of his life and say, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. The gods on this side of the Jordan, that side of the Jordan, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Moses couldn't even circumcise his own sons and God wanted to kill him. His wife had to do it. Someone that barely understood covenant before God. The daughter of a Midian priest. Joshua could challenge an entire nation. Moses couldn't lead his own family. Moses would get so ticked at people that he'd commit murder. Moses would get so mad at people that he'd strike what he should have been speaking to. Moses was the leader that went from leading to labeling. Do I got to bring water out of this rock, you bunch of rebels? 
So many times we are frozen in our own spiritual stagnancy. And we're frustrated and we're wringing our hands at what is not going on in our walk with God because we will not allow God to do a further work in our heart and in our life. As if God only gets to touch us once. As if God only gets to fill us once. There is an ongoing work that takes place in each and every heart of a believer. Until we see Jesus face to face, there's an ongoing work. The religious settle for what they've known and for where they are. The godly are in pursuit. The godly are in a chase. And what you found if you've got a, a, a relationship with God that's living and it's active is that there are no real formulas. Christianity is not a formula. Christianity isn't, you know, dot all these I's and cross all these T's. Christianity is all based in relationship and therefore pursuit. And any relationship is only as good as the pursuit. Where there's no pursuit, the relationship is weak. Where there's no pursuit, there's not love that's exchanged verbally, physically. There must be pursuit. There must be chase in a godly relationship. And there is no more godly relationship, no more important relationship than you and Jesus Christ. And God's heart isn't the one that needs to be circumcised. God's heart isn't the one that needs to change. God is perfect. He's just in all of his ways. He's righteous, slow to anger, abounding in grace. Our heart is the one that must continually change, must. And so God is continually cutting things away from our heart. God, why am I going through this? Because God's dealing with another area of your heart. And in my opinion, I believe that we are constantly on the operating table before God. That contrary to a physical heart surgery, they'll suture you when you're done. I don't believe that's the case with God. Our hearts are always laid bare before God and he is constantly performing surgery on us. Constantly. What about you? What kind of leader are you? Are you the kind of leader that can get out of something but you haven't been able to get into anything new? Or do you carry a knife like Joshua? I mean, there's no way that Joshua could even hang with Moses' resume. Can you imagine even applying as Moses' successor? And out of all the things that Moses desired in the leader that would succeed him after he knew that he would never step foot in the promised land, he said, let God set a man over the congregation that would be able to bring him out and bring him in, lead him out, lead him in. He was talking of not only going in and out of God's presence, but he was talking about going in and out of battle. Many Christians don't grow because they don't know how to deal with spiritual opposition because their hearts have not been circumcised to be able to handle war. They're just surviving as Christians. They're treading water as Christians and they're never going anywhere. They're never reaching another side. They're never reaching a, a destination in Christ because they think that Christianity is all about just keeping your head above water. It's not. With God, there's always a destination. With God, there's always a purpose. With God, there's always a plan. There's somewhere he's always leading you into. 
I oftentimes think about why, why it was so important for Joshua to have a night. Under Joshua, they faced more battles than they ever did under Moses. They had a few, but under Joshua, many. And the Bible says at the end of Joshua's life, there were still peoples that needed to be conquered and land that needed to be claimed that, that hadn't taken place under Joshua. He was too old. He fought his whole life long. Whole life long. Constantly driving out the previous inhabitants and occupying in their place. Driving them out, occupying, driving them out, occupying. Our Christian walk is always about taking new land, about driving out inhabitants that have been there for so long. That depression's been there long enough. That fear and anxiety has been there long enough. That anger has been there long enough. It's time to drive it out and occupy in its place. God's always bringing us out and into. He doesn't just bring us out and say, hey, tread water for a while. He's always trying to bring us into something. What is God trying to bring you into? And if he doesn't seem to be bringing you into anything, why not? Can your heart not handle what he's trying to do? Can your heart not grasp what he's trying to do? Because if God's leaders have a knife, then so does our God. And today, it's a spiritual circumcision that takes place with our hearts. God wants to cut away. Wants to cut away that which is needed and necessary. Wants to cut away that which, if it remained, could cause infection. He wants to run away. And keep in mind what was circumcised under Old Testament law was that which was used to procreate and represent an intimacy. And God wants you to continue to produce, and God wants you to walk in intimacy with him, and he doesn't want anything in the way. Anything that could cause infection doesn't want anything in the way. He wants to cut that away from your heart. Hopefully this isn't too deep for you. Wants to cut that away from your heart because he wants your heart. You gave him your heart when you became a Christian. You gave him your heart. Maybe God's trying to heal you from loss that you've suffered because you said in your own words, a part of you died. I, I say prophesy over that and say, no, 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 a part of you became wiser and stronger. Don't prophesy death over your own self. Don't declare to those that are still living and that you are in loving relationship with that they only have half your heart now because you gave half of it to the person that died. You give all your heart to the Lord. And not even the death of the closest loved one can lay claim to your heart. A part of you only dies if you want it to. God needs all of you. There are battles to be fought, and there will be until you see him face to face. Just like there was with Joshua's soul, there is with you and I. There's land to be taken and battles to be won, and God's trying to bring you out and to bring you in. And I just want to be able to pray for you today. I know that this message may have run a little deep. It may have cut a little deep this morning. Maybe God's speaking to your heart about, about loss. Maybe you found yourself longing for days, for years, that have long since passed you by instead of seeking God and asking God, what would you have me do today? The enemy would love to get you caught in the past. God's trying to reveal future task, future 
appointment for you. I'll quote one last verse to you, Ephesians 2.10. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As long as you are alive and on this earth, there's work for you to do. And there's plenty of work to go around. My work's not your work. Your work's not my work. And I'm not trying to get you to do my work. I'm doing my work. I'm doing my work. That you should walk in them. That you should walk in them. Why? Because you're his workmanship, not your own. You're his workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus, which God prepared. Find out what does God have for you. Why wouldn't you want to know? I think when we're content being saved and we don't want to do what God's asked of us, we haven't grown beyond our own circumcision. Lord, thank you so much for my salvation. I can't tell you how much it means to me. But that's where I'm checking out. There's more, so much more. And if God's been speaking to you on whatever point or whatever level in this message, anything from just renewing your commitment to the Lord to dealing with things that you might be hanging on to in the past, you're not dishonoring those that have gone before us. You're letting them know that you're continuing on with all that you've learned from them, with with a wonderful example that they were. And if God's just speaking to your heart this morning, I'm going to pray. Feel free to stand at any given time in response to what you're receiving, Father.